0: This is Binod Shankar and you're listening to The Real Finance Mentor Podcast from TheRealFinanceMentor.com The Real Finance Mentor is your go-to resource for insight and inspiration on careers in finance, CFA and more. I would think, why this podcast? Well, my goal is to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance career by making it, one, relatable. This is not theoretical stuff. We zero in on the critical, practical issues. Number two, authentic. No bullshit. No sidestepping. The topics, guests, and questions are all from that perspective. And number three, take a chartered account and CFA charterholder at 17 plus years as a corporate warrior, mix in 10 years of entrepreneurship during a decade of full-time CFA training as speaking, mentoring, cycling, and mountaineering. And that's me. Welcome to the Real Finance Mentor, or as I call it, RFM. Hi, everyone. This is Binod Shankar here, the Real Finance Mentor with another episode of the RFM podcast. The RFM podcast is designed to deliver insight and inspiration for your finance careers. And each guest that I bring to the show has something very important to share that you can learn a lot from. Today, I've got someone with me who came actually quite highly recommended from someone I regard quite well. And uh, he's quite young in his career, but he's gone a slightly different way in finance. And I want him to share his experiences and thoughts and insights with us, uh, especially those who are starting off their careers in finance. Uh, Shwetha Samir, who is the guest on the show, is a CFA charter holder, an FRM holder, and a CIPM charter holder. After completing his engineering from BITS Pilani, which, for those who don't know, actually is one of India's prestigious engineering institutes, he worked as a quantitative and then as a senior quant quantitative analyst in the field of passive investing, by joining the Morningstar indexes team for over five years. He then made a switch to the behavioral science team in Morningstar, where he currently works as an applied statistical researcher. Shritab is also an active volunteer at CFA Society India, where he, along with other CFA charter holders, engages with regulators in the Indian market to advocate for investor protection. So quite an interesting background. Welcome to the show, Shritab.
1: Thanks. Thanks a lot for having me, Ganod.
0: Now I'm going to start asking you a question, which just struck me the first time I saw your CV, right? I mean, normally people do the MBA after engineering degree, especially a place as prestigious as Bitspilani, right? It's like a rite of passage, BTEC plus MBA. So what happened to you and why CFA? Yeah,
1: true, true. Most of my, most of my friends and classmates back in fourth year, Uh, They would have actually two routes. One would be to give GRE and apply to the master's in the US or Europe. And there would be other bunch of folks who would give CAT, which is an entrance examination for MBA colleges, and then go to IAMs and uh, FMS, such colleges in India. Uh, In my case, I just found a new interest, which was finance. Uh, So in my fourth year, uh, our college allows us to take uh, different sort of electives outside of our engineering and I took two courses of finance and uh, well, those struck me a lot. So I was very much interested to explore it a bit further. So that's how I got into Morningstar, uh, which which is an investment research company and there I met a lot of people. experienced professionals who have already done their MBA from IAMs or other places. Uh, And I was just, when I was talking to them, uh, they always talked about CFA a lot. And they always thought of CFA as that prestigious program, which is very much important. So I thought, well, I have already heard from these experienced folks. So why not just get a head start and why not give CFA uh, to start with? So That's how I started, uh, got enrolled myself in CFA. And to be frank, uh, well, it did have a lot of impact. So not only did I get a very good knowledge in the field of finance, but it also gave me a sense of respect, something when we would communicate with clients, they would often talk about it. So I think that sense of belonging in the investment community kind of increased when I did my CFA. And essentially, it's your universal credential as well, right? But everyone acknowledges it. It's not just in India. Uh, in India, you would know these great B schools. But the thing is, when you're talking to people outside of India, when you're talking to people in the UK or Europe or the US, they will understand what CFA is. So it gave me that universal credential which probably uh, an Indian B school may not have given me. So the first two years uh, in my job, I try to focus on getting a good industry experience and try to do certification courses like uh, FRM and CFA.
0: Interesting. You mentioned that Shuta, because belonging, respect, credibility, of course, knowledge, uh, some of the top reasons why people sign up for the CFA program, uh, because it is of immense importance in certain areas. Uh, let me ask you, CFA is often a challenging journey for many. Uh, three levels, and especially for you because you come from a non-finance background uh, engineer. So, what were the difficulties you faced and how did you tackle them? What were your strategies?
1: Yes, yes, especially when you have a full-time job, there is always that issue of finding out time, Uh, right? So Monday to Friday, you have your daily work. So you essentially have to find time in the night or on the weekends. And in my case, the kind of environment I was working in, uh, CFA was considered very prestigious. Right. So there was always that bit of stress and pressure that I need to clear it. So I just remember one incident. So say regarding CFA2, Level 2 specifically, I was uh, awaiting my results for Level 1 in Jan 2015. So I was waiting for the results. So I didn't prepare anything for level two, thinking that let's wait for the results and then decide what I need to do next. So uh, when I got the results in Jan 2015, I kind of, uh, uh, when I looked at the results, I was like, okay, I just cleared it. Uh, Let me just take a break for a month's time and decide what I need to do next. So I uh, kind of waited until March. And when March came, I just looked at the curriculum. And look, going through it, I felt like, well, this is uh, a lot of stuff and I just have three months. So then it's kind of, it struck me that, uh, well, I have to put a lot of effort to clear this. So I had two options in front of me. I have already registered. So either don't appear for the exam or take the stress and clear it. I had some sense of pride back then. I was like, well... Whatever challenge that I'm going to take, I'm going to, uh, uh, I'm going to complete that. So I went, I went for it, and the consequences was, uh, well, social life kind of went for a toss. So the things which I did on my end was creating a weekly targets for me between March to May, and uh, I would award myself with junk food like coke and pizza. Uh, those were the concerns of motivation for me. Uh, so that kind of helped me uh, follow a proper discipline. So discipline played a very important role uh, in my case. Although I'm telling you, I mean, coke and pizza, of course, these uh, junk food may not be a right option for uh, health freaks, but yeah, in my case, it worked. Uh, and the other good thing in my case was, I was actually staying with like-minded flatmates. Uh, it kind of created an environment where I can take a, with when someone would take a book of CFA, I would also follow along and I would take my book as well. So I had two flatmates essentially, one was giving his level three and the other guy was giving his level one. So it was not like we were trying to clear each other doubts. Uh, it was more of that environment which was created that we need to study and clear this exam. So. Often, I guess, uh, this may not be true for many people uh, because they might be either living with a family or alone. So I guess uh, an important point in that case would be to have a study group where you can go and uh, uh, study with other people. Even if that's not possible, probably go to a library or some some place where there is a sense of studying. Uh, I guess that will play a very important role. Uh, to get that kind of discipline.
0: Yes, thanks for sharing that, Sridhar. Although I must warn (laughs) the listeners of this podcast that trying to crack an exam as tough as level two in a mere three months can be a very tough challenge uh, and demands massive amount of focus and concentration and dedication. So I would typically recommend a three plus one, four months or even five months to handle something as huge as, as wide as and deep as level two. Now I want to talk about something. I'm going to slight diversion, up about your FRM, the Financial Risk Manager certificate. Now, why the FRM? I mean, it's not directly linked to what you're doing, is it? Or apart from the obvious, you know, the focus, the topics, the parts, the exams. What do you find different in the FRM compared to CFA? And when and why would you recommend that a CFA charter holder also gets the FRM? Because I see that a lot. I mean, around, uh, especially in, in the subcontinent where once you pass CFA, as as we're doing the CFA, people also go for their forum, maybe just to get another certificate. But what's the real reason?
1: True. Uh, Well, to be frank, uh, in simple words, even that was the case for me. Uh, I wanted to stand out in the community. Everyone around me was doing CFA. And I kind of thought that's something which is uh, common. So in order to stand out, I need to do something else to show that, yeah, I mean, I, I can continue building my knowledge and still get that kind of credibility in the field. So that was the reason how I started with FRM. And this dates back till, uh, to 2015 when I just completed my CFA level two. And when I looked at the schedule for level three, that was just a year later, right? So I had complete one year. And I was thinking that in order to make the most of that one year, why not give FRM in November? And um, so that was the essential reason. And also uh, a few bit of CFA level two was covered in the FRM. So that already gave me some bit of confidence that I can probably clear that. But yeah, as far as looking at the entire curriculum and why someone should uh, opt for FRM, I guess it's... Uh, after giving my level 1 and level 2, I kind of feel it's easier to switch to a risk management side if you complete your FRM. Uh, the kind of uh, topics that FRM covers, uh, things like operational risk, credit risk, uh, market risk, things of that sort, it kind of prepares you uh, for roles such as a, a market risk analyst or a credit risk analyst, if you want to work for S&P or Moody's. Right, So if you want to work in that kind of field, probably FRM is a better choice for you. But, uh, so I guess it uh, boils down to the question uh, what your end goal actually is. If you want to stay in the investment management uh, field, I guess CFA is always a better option. If you're still exploring finance and you just don't know uh, whether it's, uh, it's the right thing for you, I would say you should still consider CFA because FRM is a very focused uh, certification. So, but yeah, if you are able to find time for both of them, well, means do both of them, right? Means, but yeah, your social life is going for a toss uh, for sure if you are doing both of them. So I would recommend choose either one of them at least to start with based on what your actual goal is in life.
0: Right, which is what I tell most people, right? I mean, there's no point just adding badges and, and certifications at the end of your name. Just try and focus on the area which you like and which you're good at, and then and, and, and then get a certification linked to that, maybe, which will help you in that. Right? Let's talk about your career now. I mean, you could have gotten into equity research without and active portfolio management, like most CFHR holders, right? But you went into passive investing. So you're sort of an outlier. So my question here is what fascinated, or even now fascinates you about passive slash index investing.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I didn't think much about it to be frank back in fourth year for me, the uh, goal was to get in the field of finance because people around me would be either going for core fields by going for GRE or they will join an MBA college. So for me, it was more important to get in the field of finance first. And uh, in my college, we had the six month of internship that we needed to complete to get a degree. Uh, in the field of finance, uh, the first and foremost company that would come on everyone's list to, would be to go to MSCI. Uh, for people who actually don't know about this company, um, this is one of the famous themes in the field of passive investing. Uh, they create a lot of... Uh, global indexes in the field of equity, and fixed income, and multi-asset. So uh, I looked at that company, and I was trying to figure out what else I could do, because there was a lot of rush to apply to this company, right? And I didn't have that finance background, unlike many other peers of mine. So I looked at the list, and Morningstar was another name, and only few people knew, because it was a new name which was added back then. So I did some research. Uh, I figured out that they are actually doing the same thing and they're even a smaller team where I can learn a lot. So I decided to be a contrarian uh, in this approach. Uh, So I applied to Morningstar and that's how I got the indexes team. And once I got over there, uh, it kind of gave me a unique flavor of finance industry along with the coding capabilities so there were like the aspects of quantitative nature as well in this, uh, uh, in this job. So I felt this is what I meant to do. Uh, so the first job kind of helped me set a precedence in my career. And I think that's how I went along with that. Uh, and I, again, it felt a lot interesting working in that field, the kind of knowledge that I gained and all the stuff. So I think that was the reason how I got into the field of passive investing. And uh, yeah, in some way, I was lucky uh, to have gained that kind of experience.
0: It is interesting, you know, you mentioned luck. I was thinking as he was speaking, actually, I would say there were three ingredients that sort of resulted in where, where you are right now. One is, of course, luck, but second was instinct, right? I mean, you knew somehow that your coding and analytical background would be of use in the Morningstar context rather than probably some other field. And uh, of course, guts, because like you said, you didn't go to MSCI, you went to Morningstar is a little known name, so you are like almost like a contrarian um, compared to others. So I think if you go against the flow, sometimes there can be significant benefits. But I think a mix of luck, instinct and guts uh, probably resulted in, in, in your success, right? Um, now, digging more into, the, into your career. Now, if you read the literature, a lot of people say that the rise of passive investing, active investing will decline. Uh, in fact, if you look around you, the uh, last 20, 30 years, trillions of dollars have been pumped into ind- indices and passive investing. Uh, most CFA charter holders work as fund managers and equity research analysts, at least in the developed world. Now, does this trend towards passive investing mean fewer opportunities for CFA charter holders? Uh, what roles would be there or would be left? And how numerous are they, relatively speaking? So this is a this is a question that is of significant, uh, strategic importance to anyone who is a charter holder who is beginning the journey. So what do you think?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So when you talk about CFA, the first thing that comes to your mind is a fund manager or an equity research analyst, right? But with the rise of passive investing, all of us, we understand that there will be a gradual shift in the future. But the, my question is a shift to what? Uh, in my case, I went in the field of passive investing, right? Uh, and there, we still need a good knowledge in finance. We needed that in order to build different kind of passive strategies. So I would say, CFA still gave me that kind of exposure to multiple topics like economics, security analysis, corporate finance, uh, asset allocation, right? And this is something which every employer in the financial industry will prefer. It's not just in the fund management or equity research field, right? I am sure that uh, when I talk to other peers of mine, uh, friends and other uh, companies, they often talk about ML, AI and all that stuff. And they they do CFA because they know that they would be well equipped to create those kind of strategies if they uh, get that kind of financial exposure, which kind of comes from CFA. So I think we should not limit ourselves to fund management or equity research roles. I guess uh, CFA kind of gives you a broad perspective of finance. Of course, there is some bit of specialization to fund management, but I'm assuming that uh, the kind of topics that are being covered in CFA, it, it, it's not going to stop you to get into other fields.
0: I mean, I'm, yes, I mean, I see what you're saying. Uh, it does not mean the death of active investing, does it? Because you still have, I think, a lot of opportunity for active investing in frontier and emerging markets, in alternative investments like real estate, for example, um, in ESG, which is becoming a fast-growing trend, at least in developed markets. So I think there's still significant scope for active investing. But uh, you mentioned during the the, the chat that we had uh, in terms of machines getting involved, right, that someone on the other side... But I think that someone on the other side is increasingly a machine simply designed to buy and sell with minimum human intervention, isn't it? I mean, hedge funds like Renaissance and the big names like Bridgewater do it all the time. So, isn't this, again, reducing human intervention and increasing machines? And is that not leading to
1: unemployment? Yes, yes. Uh, I guess in the fund management industry, they are being challenged a lot to bring more innovation and uh, Kind of products that they are creating. So I was just reading in a recent article. I'm not sure which uh, whether it was FT economists, but they estimated that there would be there was a, there's going to be a drop of like five to ten percent in the headcount uh, since the investment management industry is in in flux. So I guess it's imperative for us to know what AI and machine learning uh, are and what they can bring to the table. And how you can use these kind of uh, topics uh, alongside the financial knowledge that you have acquired through CFA or whatever, right? So I I guess there's going to be a lot of new themes and products that are that are going to come in the investment management industry. Um, Like you mentioned, sustainability, right? It is becoming increasingly popular these days. Now that we are becoming conscious about our surroundings and uh, the kind of social impact that we want to bring so i guess there's going to be a lot of innovations coming in as a result of uh, passive investing because when you talk about investment when you just want to get exposure to the markets you are going to choose a passive investment approach because it has lower fees and uh, great asset management companies like vanguard and blackrock they have openly talked about this that uh, they want to reduce the cost and fees so that uh, it's accessible for all types of investors. So now for fund managers, I guess it's important to know what kind of products that they can offer to investors who, which can actually address the needs. Uh, Do you want to uh, get exposure to AI or ML Uh, for uh, funds? You'll probably choose that fund, right? If I'm interested in a Pharma uh, in a pharma fund, I will probably choose that. If I'm interested in a biotech uh, companies, I will choose that. So I guess there's a lot of innovation and there are a lot of new funds coming in. Which uh, I guess that's the kind of approach that the fund management industry is actually following.
0: Now, this is a good segue to my next question, Shweta, Because you said before the interview, you know, we had this chat and you were saying that we should embrace the new world and work towards acquiring a skill set that new opportunities would require. I mean, opportunities like uh, ESG, sustainability, alternate investments, but also opportunities in this world of passive investing and automation, machine learning, AI. So it's, it's all very fine to say we should embrace a new world and all those things, right? But how does that work in reality? Assuming I'm a fresh CFA pass out, right? What specific skills should I acquire? Why? And how? How can CFA charter holders and candidates prepare for this new world? of increased passive investing automation, possibly less opportunities out there, more competition with more people coming into the market. So what are the thoughts that you have on this?
1: If you are in a back office, if you are doing a a data entry job, or you are in the field of accounting or general administrative role, you will be the first one to get affected because of this rise in passive investing and AI and ML. So certifications like CFE, of course, will give you a head start, but that's not enough uh, in this new world. So I guess there are three important things that we need to uh, look at. The one thing is having a good knowledge of finance, which you can get through CFA or uh, any other such certification courses. The second one is developing that analytical mindset. So you need to think of different scenarios and you should be able to have that framework, how you can solve a particular problem and be able to draw sensible conclusions and that is only going to come with practice and that's why I guess a very important uh, role would be to get that industry experience uh, beforehand and then the third thing would be how to use that uh, how to use the analytical tools that can help you achieve that mindset so in my field for example we use different tools like Python SQL, AWS, cloud services. So I guess tech is going to play a very important role in our field. So it's better to equip yourself with that kind of skill set. I'm not saying that you should delve deeper into that and become a technology analyst. I think what's more important is that you should be able to know what these things can do and even uh, a small exposure to such uh, tools can help you a lot in the field. So I guess if we are able to follow these three points, uh, uh, it will be, it, it will play a quite important role to uh, embrace this new world.
0: And I guess, uh, Shweta, uh, good points. And I guess that, you know, if you don't have an analytical mindset or you don't have the uh, learnings regarding algorithms and ML and AI and things like that, then I suppose uh, you probably want to focus on people-oriented roles where you communicate closely with investors and high net worth individuals and help them reach their goals, right? I mean, any one of the skills, I suppose, either on the soft side, on the technical side, or maybe a blend of this can help you future proof your career. Now, I want to specifically talk about your third point in in the earlier question, right? Where you mentioned that you're currently pursuing something regarding data science. Now, that's a fascinating area, a fast evolving area as well where there could be opportunities for CFA candidates and charter holders, right? Now, can you tell me more about this course and how has your experience been so far? Uh, are you a data scientist yet or in progress?
1: Yes, in progress, To uh, means to be frank, I don't think uh, it's, uh, I would be able to do it so early. It's always, it's always going to be in progress, with the kind of innovation that's coming in the field Uh, Well, regarding the course specifically, I guess uh, in India, there was this lockdown which happened in March. And the first few weeks of April, I kind of thought, well, I I guess I have time. There's no social life for me right now. Why not use those weekends, weekend time and get a better, uh, give a better structure to my data science skills. So I already had that. Uh, exposure in my uh, job, but I wanted to structure that a lot. So I look for different courses online, uh, search for different such programs on Coursera, uh, EdX, and all. Uh, but then I came across this course uh, which was affiliated to Purdue University. So it's a one-year program which gives me a postgraduate, uh, 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 postgraduate in data analytics. So I got means, uh, uh, why not just do that? And it was able to cover a lot of topics, like Python, R, machine learning, and it even has a capstone project at the very end to give me a hands-on experience to uh, the kind of problems which companies are essentially facing. So I'm very much looking forward to complete that capstone project, right? Uh, I guess the major reason for me to choose this uh, course was the live classes. Uh, so when you look at courses on Coursera edX, the problem with that is uh, these are uh, these are recorded videos. So the level of engagement is going to be pretty low. You don't have people along with you, around you, who are actually doing the course right. So I think the level of engagement will be a lot higher in the live classes, where it's even easy for you to clear your doubts midway. Uh, so yes, I guess, uh, if you think about all these different aspects, it can help you decide what kind of course you actually want to take. Do you want to choose uh, something uh, uh, which you can do at your own pace? Maybe live classes may not be the right approach for you. But you need to consider the aspects like the level of engagement as well as uh, uh, well, means how you can clear your doubts and all. So I guess that were, those were the two very important points for me, and hence I chose this course.
0: Yes, I mean, quite, uh, quite a relevant course these days, especially for finance folk, right? I suppose you should take advantage of the lockdown if you can, and lots of, and huge variety of um, online courses in terms of quality and quantity and, you know, and in terms of subjects as well. Uh, but I suppose about communication as well, right, Shutab? I mean, I'm personally not comfortable listening to a recording um, or even doing a live class. I remember I, I signed up for Andrew NG's uh, course on basic AI. I dropped out after the first two classes. So I'm a dropout in that sense. So, but this brings me to a very interesting topic of communication, right? So we've been talking about technical skills so far, you know, uh, data science, Python, R, SQL, etc. Now, we talked about communication before this interview, and you talked about, you know, your struggle to communicate. Now I agree that communication is a critical and often underrated skill among technical people like, you know, finance graduates and engineers, who price qualifications, and technical skills more at a younger age, to their detriment of course. Now let's go to your story, right? What have been your struggles regarding communication and uh, equally importantly, how have you handled this?
1: Yes, I, I face a lot of struggles in communication to be frank. Uh, it all started um, when I just joined Morningstar, my first job. So back in my engineering college, when we had to communicate to professors or talk to my friends. Uh, if it's professors, you just need to write them a mail or submit a draft. So it was more of a writing skill for you. Uh, and when you're talking to your friends, you can always use your own uh, local language, which in my case was Hindi, right? So it was pretty easy for me to communicate my ideas, my thoughts, and all this stuff. When I came to co- uh, when I came to uh, Morningstar, my first job. I remember that specific moment when I was on a call with one of my U.S. counterparts. Uh, I already had a lot of respect for him. Um, And yes, when I was on that call, I just found myself stunned when he asked me a question Uh, and I was at a loss of words. So that was my first hurdle. I still remember that. So uh, when I saw that. so I saw that in front of myself, I just made an approach that for the next six months, I'm only going to talk in English with everyone in the office. So I guess that, that's how it helped me uh, communicate better. And so it, I think communication just comes with practice, right? It's more about the practice. You keep on doing it for a, a long duration and that's how you're going to improve your soft skills. Uh, well, but after that, after those six months, An even bigger problem came, uh, which was how to explain the technical concepts to non-technical people or stakeholders or clients. They don't worry. They don't care about uh, all those integrities, right? They are only worried about the end goal. So that was the other bigger problem for me. And uh, as far as uh, trying to solve that problem is concerned, uh, I try to understand why I'm facing that issue. And I understand that what we, uh, what we essentially do, we, we technical folks essentially do is we try to explain the processes and not the outcome. We generally focus on how we solve the problem rather than what the problem actually is and why we are actually solving the problem. So I guess that those are the mistakes which I was doing or I'm sure that many other technical people would also be doing. Uh, So when I joined the Behavioural Finance team, I just realized how important it is is to use different tools that we have. Uh, The team, in my case, they were only using visual aids to tell the problem to everyone, right? And I was kind of not impressed that here we are doing a lot of simulation, uh, creating a lot of simulation tools, doing a lot of analysis and all that stuff. And we are just able to use the photos and charts and all the stuff just to relay the information. So I guess it's very important for us to know these different tools. And if we're able to tell a story to anyone while presenting, I think uh, maybe that's the way to go about it. Uh, I'm not saying uh, I'm perfect at it. I'm still struggling with it. I guess it's always like one step at a time, right? So keep on have, taking that step at a time uh, uh, as long as uh, you have that desired uh, approach, that confidence. So once you have that confidence and once you build that kind of framework how to use these different tools, I'm sure yeah, we will be able to communicate a lot effectively.
0: The other issue we talked about you know in communication was about the whole uh, being tactful part you know can we talk about that in more detail?
1: Yes, yes. So I guess in my case, the problem was that I was not being diplomatic. Uh, The problem with that is, uh, when you discuss with uh, your fellow employees, you can't be uh, you can't just simply talk about the problem of what I was essentially doing was I would just mention uh, that someone is wrong in the in front of their face, and not everyone will like it. Uh, Right. If they are your friends, or if they are uh, those employees who respect you a lot, or you have a very good relationship with them, uh, it won't be an issue. But that's really the case, right? You in in the field of in your career, you are going to meet a lot of new people. You can't simply go and point out the problems uh, right in front of their face. That can often lead to bad consequences. So uh, there's was this problem in my thinking, I guess. Uh, I always thought about that their approach is not going to work and I will simply state that. Uh, what I realized was that if you ask the right questions to them and inquire more about their process, as in what idea they are coming up with, I think that can help, the address, uh, help address the problems because it might happen that you will get the answer before you even state the problem. So if you keep on asking the right questions, rather than stating the problem in the first hand, uh, that's probably one way to solve this problem. And so I guess the, being diplomatic is a very important trait. It's not, uh, you still need to be frank about it, but I guess you need to use these two different skill sets while trying to uh, communicate with your fellow employees. They are not just your friends or colleagues, uh, they're not your friends or uh, uh, your family members, right? Uh, So, I guess being diplomatic is a very important uh, skill that one needs to develop.
0: And that's hugely significant what I just said now, Shweta, because I think uh, hundreds of thousands, possibly millions of youngsters who are used to college, university life, where everything's transparent and sort of fair, suddenly thrust into the world of jobs and bosses and deadlines and presentations and working with strangers. They tend to speak their mind. Uh, too often, too bluntly. And uh, they learn, of course, over course of time after they get hit with, you know, whatever uh, adverse consequences that, and, and sometimes of course, they go the other extreme, right, they become too quiet, and, and they become very ephemistic, and, you know, uh, <clears throat> all those things. But I think the, the key, the key part here is emotion intelligence, where you need to know yourself, but also you need to know others, and know that no two people are the same, and know that people can get hurt and also address things from their point of view, right, which is something I learned in my career over a long period of time through, of course, uh, trial and error as well. Right. So I think that's something that youngsters need to pick up this whole idea of the fact that you have to be tactful, uh, firm but tactful and convey your point without offending anyone. That's quite an art actually. Um, You can't really pick it up like this. It comes with a little bit of experience and some mentoring and some self-awareness. Now I want to talk about uh, the CFA qualification and the market, you know, especially in India, which is of course a huge market for CFA candidates, right? There's a growing perception that too many are passing all three levels of the CFA exam and hence creating a glut of CFA pass outs and a declining respect for the qualification, especially now that the exam has become computer-based and now you have level two and three twice a year as opposed to once a year for the last many decades. Um, and, you know, we haven't, we haven't reduced the number of years required to get the charter from uh, four years to three years uh, recently. So there's also a fear that it may end up like the charter currency market, right? Where many CAs accept and are paid low salaries and work in you know, obscure companies. So you, of course, uh, are based in India, work in India, uh, you're part of CFA society India, active volunteer. I'm sure you have your thoughts on this. What do you think about this uh, development?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, one thing which still stands out in the case of CFA would be that it's still a standardized assessment, uh, like GMAT or GRE, which everyone understands around the world, which might not be the case with CA, right? I mean, this is probably one kind of a problem, but I understand means that, that there is some bit of blood which is coming in our field, uh, especially for CFA charter holders. So, i guess but there is one important thing to know uh, to mention right so if there are two people uh, who come for a job and the employer is equally impressed um, with both of them one of them is a cfa charter holder and the other is, other one is not i'm sure that they are going to choose the former who has that cfa charter so it's still I, i'm still uh, i guess there's still a lot of credibility to the CFA charter, which is still, uh, it's going to be there. But regarding the GLUT specifically, I guess uh, in order to withstand that, uh, you need to stand out then, right? And to in order to stand out, you need to be different from other CFA charter holders. And that would be to be relevant uh, to the industry, to know what is actually going on in the industry. So one of my friends, uh, Who's who uh, whose actual job is to help freshers get placed in the financial industry. Uh, when I had a chat with him, he mentioned that uh, you need to understand what's currently happening in the market. You need to know say why RBI uh, boosted liquidity in the bond market. Uh, right? Or You need to know why foreign investments in India, it's going down. So things like that, uh, it's very important to know because that's when you're able to use the technical tools or the knowledge that you have gained from CFA and you're able to apply to the actual situation, to the actual environment that you're placed in. And that's that's what is going to impress the employers, right? So I guess these are the important skills that you need to develop. And the way to do it, uh, do it would be keep on reading news, keep on reading uh, uh, different... Uh, uh, articles on Economist or FT, right? Whatever your favorite source of news is. That's how you're going to develop that kind of skill set where you know what's actually going on. So if you are relevant to the industry, uh, you will be able to stand out from other folks uh, who are also doing their CFA.
0: No, absolutely. I think uh, people shouldn't be unduly worried about so-called glut in the market and oversupply of CFA charter holders, because yes, everyone has a CFA charter holder, a CFA charter, everyone knows about equity investments and portfolio management and blah, blah, blah. But what makes you stand out would be your personality, uh, your soft skills, networking, and of course, and of course, being up to date. In fact, I still remember as you we were talking, I was thinking about my own experience. I still remember way back about what, 26 years ago. I was appearing for an interview uh, with the CEO of a, of a, of a bank and, uh, he, and he asked me a question on what, what's happening in the market these days. Uh, can you tell me something uh, relevant to our accounting or finance? And I, I remember telling him something about a recent change in accounting standard for leases in India. And he <laughs> didn't say anything. And a few weeks later, I got hired and I met the CEO again on my first day at work. And he said, "I hired you because out of one hundred and fifty chart accounts were interviewed, you were the only guy who could say something about what happened in contemporary <laughs> accounting <laughs> so uh, that got yeah. me a job. that got me a job uh, now moving on to of course, you're volunteering right with i mean you're also uh, an active volunteer with c f a India Society with the research and advocacy committee right so that's interesting because. But although I'm a volunteer on the board of CFA Emirates, uh, and I handle career services, and I constantly encourage people to volunteer, uh, you don't see many people raising their hands. So how did you get involved, and what's your mandate, and uh, why?
1: Yeah, um, well, it was a part of serendipity, to be frank. Uh, I met with Amit, who uh, who works at CFA Institute, and who was also on this podcast. So I met him uh, regarding creating a new platform in Morningstar. So we had a very good relationship. uh, And then he mentioned me about this workshop on bounded rationality, uh, which uh, Tapmi Institute here in India. Uh, It's uh, one of the MBA colleges. Uh, uh, So there, there is this annual workshop, which tells us about how we can apply heuristics in the field of finance and how we can make things more intuitive right that's that actually gave me the exposure to the behavioral finance aspect and later i moved to behavioral finance right so that's how i met uh raj uh because uh and raj is uh, the director of cfa society in india so that's how i met him and i came to know about him and one of the days he just mentioned me in the one of the conferences whether i would want to join the whether i would want to volunteer in safe Society and I said yes, why not? Because uh, now thinking about it, the the kind of experience I have uh, had in the last few months and all, it allowed me to interact with so many like-minded individuals who are CFA Charter Holders themselves and are extremely knowledgeable in the area. And now that I think about it, it just gives me that exposure which a news site would do. It's just, I think, it gives me a focused approach where they talk about all the relevant things that is happening in the financial markets. So I guess uh, that's how I got into uh, volunteering for the Society. And I guess it has been a really good experience. Uh, uh, I understand that means uh, you need, this is a very important bit of networking, to be frank. You get a lot of opportunity to network with fellows who are so great in the financial industry and you get to learn a lot from them, um, I'm sure it means if you're considering, if you have completed your level three and all, it's always good to find out a way to volunteer for your local chapter uh, because the kind of exposure that you're going to get from that, uh, I don't think uh, it's that easy anywhere else.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Switha, because I think people underrate the importance of volunteering, right? I mean, when you volunteer, your profile increases, people see you, and especially since you're connected to a local CFA society, uh, that's that increases your profile. And of course, networking opportunities. And you can, and sometimes you end up working with senior CFA charter holders, right? Which also get, has a, is a fantastic mentoring opportunity for you, right? If they like you and you work on projects with them, like I do at CFA Emirates, right? I mean, I have about three or five volunteers for all CFA level two or level three candidates, and we work on different projects, and they meet people, they they learn how to complete uh, and manage projects, and, and they learn soft skills and networking. So it's a good package uh, overall. Now, I know this question is probably a bit premature, because the question is, everyone has some regrets, something they wish they hadn't done or had done, uh, like what you call in behavioral finance, errors of omission or errors of commission, right? Uh, I know you're still young and, you know, uh, five, seven years into your career, but you're pretty switched on. And I'm sure you're quite introspective and you observe things very closely. What has been your biggest career regret so far?
1: Well, yeah, that's a tough question. Um, if I think about it, I guess uh, that would be that I specialized way too early right, in my field. And that was, uh, the field of passive investing, uh, because it's a very niche field. When I talk about when when I talk about my job with other people who are in the financial industry, even they, they don't understand it what I essentially do. So it's quite a very niche field, right? So I guess maybe that's one of the regrets that I would have specializing way too early, because I feel that the first few years of your career should be something where you try to explore a lot, try to understand what different opportunities are there uh, uh, for you. So it's more of that bit of exploration that you need to do rather than specializing the field because it kind of narrows down your train of thought. right? So you only start thinking about all the problems in a very uh, specific way. So I kind of uh, uh, understood that. Uh, after my five years with uh, the indexes team. And you know, over the period, I was reading a lot of books uh, in the last few years. I think that kind of gave me uh, that exposure which I was thinking about. And that's, again, it helped me move to a different field in behavioral finance later. So, well, yeah, thinking about it, if I had the chance to do everything again, I would have gained more practical experience, network with more people, see what opportunities I have that I can explore. So it would be more to get that kind of practical experience along with reading books that can help you broaden your, uh, uh, your field, your viewpoints and all. So yeah, uh, I think after learning all these things, this is one thing which I am doing uh, even today. Keep on reading as many books as you can, because then you will come to know what other things uh, and what other opportunities you would have in front of you.
0: Yeah, absolutely, uh, I think that's something else that we have in common, Shweta, because I'm also a voracious reader of books. I grew up as a single child, so books were my best friends then, and even now. And I think this year I'm down to my of 31st book so far. So,
1: oh my God, <laughs> that's
0: quite, but books are extremely helpful because you have them at your convenience and. Yeah, a lot of information that you can learn, right? Uh, Of course, we're now reaching the end of this uh, very interesting, uh, insightful interview with Shida. So I've got to ask you a very important question because this podcast, as you know, is aimed at people trying to develop their careers in finance, right? CFA, MBA, whatever it is. Now, what are the three key pieces of advice based on your experience that you would tell someone who is at the beginning of their careers or considering a career in finance?
1: Yes, I guess there would be a lot of advice that uh, one could give, Uh, but based on my experience, I feel uh, the one most important point for me was to get a mentor. And if you are able to get that mentor early in your field, that is going to play a very important role because mentors are those people who give you an unbiased view of different decisions that you're going to make in your career. So they give you that view and they can help you identify your weaknesses and strengths, which is very important. You can't just get into a field just because you think you want to. You need to know about what challenges you're going to face and all. I think that that's why it's important for you to have that mentor. And I would suggest not to just uh, ask a manager to become your mentor. I would rather suggest someone who can give you an unbiased opinion. It can be any other colleague of yours who may be working in a different uh, field, uh, in a different team. Uh, but yeah, it's better that you get that mentor early on in your career. The second point would be, uh, I'm sure I think I've already talked about that uh, uh, in the podcast. It's networking early. You will come to know about what's actually going on uh, in the industry. It, and not only really that, it also opens you to a lot of opportunities which are going to be there. In my case, uh, those were essentially investment conferences, volunteering at CFS Society, uh, the kind of exposure that it gives you. Uh, again, it's not, you don't have to think that you will do that only because you want to make a job switch. It's just about making that connections because you have no idea uh, how you're going to meet other people, right? You know, That's how I met you, for example. Uh, we didn't know that we would meet each other. So it, I think that's the power of networking. Uh, you can meet so many people uh, who will be relevant to your uh, who will be relevant to your industry. Uh, so it plays a very important role. And I think third one is uh, being humble and having a continued learning approach. Uh, great minds who have who I have come across, they always have these two traits. Uh, and things change so fast in the industry. So you need to be acquainted with these skills and stay updated. You know, when I look at people like you and so many different folks uh, who are head at their companies or uh, directors at the levels and all, I think when I look at them, they uh, I always have that sense of respect for them and I'm always impressed because they have that kind of knowledge not only in their field, they will also have knowledge in what's actually going on uh, yeah, means uh, outside uh, so i think if um, i think these would be the three uh, key pieces of advice that uh, um, i could give but yeah again it's uh, i'm still in the early phase maybe uh, there will be a few more to come but it's more uh, try to have those experience over the period
0: yeah, that's very interesting. So three points uh, for those who are listening. One, always get a mentor. Two, start networking early. And three, be humble. And along with that, always also always have a continued or continuous learning approach. Uh, that also helps a lot in terms of your career. Thank you so much, Shwetab. This has been quite insightful and inspirational, I hope, to listeners as well. Um, you know, we spent considerable time preparing for this podcast. and I really want to you know, appreciate your efforts and, and, and time you spent on this. Uh, I hope this will be useful to people who listen to this. And I hope they take the lessons to heart, uh, whether it is on technical skills, or on soft skills, on career opportunities or career tips. Um, because this is a podcast that is specifically focused on helping such folk. Thank you once again, Shwetab. I wish you the very best in your career. You seem to have You seem to be in the right place with the right mindset and the right skills. So, you know, the the perfect uh, combination. Uh, All the best and thank you once again.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Vinod. Thanks a lot. This podcast was brought to you by The Real Finance Mentor.
0: Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you found it insightful and inspirational. If you did enjoy this episode, please drop us a review and spread the word and be sure to check out more exclusive content on TheRealFinanceMentor.com and my LinkedIn profile, which is Binot Shankar CFA. Let's keep in touch. Just add your name to the mailing list on TheRealFinanceMentor.com and we'll tell you about new episodes, plus book reviews, upcoming events, and blogs. Till the next time, Onwards and Upwards.